Amen. This is the word of God, right? May God write it on our hearts that we may not sin against him. The Bible teaches some things, as you just heard. One main teaching of the Bible that I'm really excited about is that our God shows no partiality, you know, no distinction. That is, no bias, as me and you understand, biases when it comes to salvation. Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. Acts 10.34, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As pertains to salvation, no distinction. To be even clearer, we believe God elects, saves, keeps, sanctifies, and will one day glorify those who believe in Christ Jesus, his son, with no distinction. Amen? He does it on nothing that's a condition he finds in them. When he saves, he does it freely through the power of the gospel in love, for God is love. Now, this work of salvation is beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful work of art. God accomplishes it in the life of a believer. God, the artist, draws. God converts. God fills. And he keeps by his Holy Spirit. He's like a paintbrush, painting a life from death into life and to eventually eternal life. He's like an artist. And he makes beautiful, beautiful art. We can't do so. That is, you know, like pick an illustration to kind of understand the heavenly work of salvation. But let's do our best. If we're forced to, maybe we could say if salvation uh, is to be compared, maybe think of the way an artist agrees that the most infamous portrait that we have is the Mona Lisa. You know the Mona Lisa, right? Famous painting, 1500s, Leonardo da Vinci. It's estimated today that the Mona Lisa is worth somewhere between $800 million to a $1 billion as it hangs there. 30 inches long, tiny little painting. Art lovers flock to see it. And artists have had it as an inspiration for hundreds of years. Did you know the Mona Lisa was actually stolen in 1911? For two years, we didn't know where the painting was. That's how it got so popular. It showed up down the road where a guy had stolen it. He thought it belonged in Italy, not France, because uh, it is Italian after all. It's had paint thrown at her. Uh, the Mona Lisa has had paint thrown at it that they had to try to clean up. Uh, cups have been thrown at it. It now resides behind bulletproof uh, glass and has for the last 30, 30 years. Why? Because the Mona Lisa is valuable, right? It, it's unchangeable. It, it remains unstained, unsoiled. It's behind that bulletproof glass to ensure it. And for artists, it remains a beacon of hope. It's inspiration to them. Now, imagine the French thinking that the Mona Lisa needs an upgrading, that it needs to be improved a little bit. And imagine they took the Mona Lisa off the wall and they began to paint her hair blonde, you know, to give her a more you know, postmodern look. You feel the weight of it and you don't even care about art today, right? <gasps> a gasp. The moment you paint the Mona Lisa's hair blonde, you haven't just changed the Mona Lisa. You know what you've done? You've destroyed it, you've lost it entirely. 
I come to you this morning to tell you that the gospel, that is what I've shared with you, God freely choosing in Christ to forgive the sins of those who believe in him, regardless of your works, according to his mercy and grace. Okay, God doing that. If you say, I believe that, plus anything else, like dyeing the Mona Lisa's hair blonde, you have lost the gospel. The gospel is a non-negotiable beginning and end package deal courtesy of God to you and to add anything to it is not to diminish it a little bit. It's to lose it entirely. In the gospel, addition is always subtraction. We could even say addition is destruction. It's destruction. The scene that we're studying today in Acts is a scene where men are trying to destroy the gospel message. You heard the story read to you. I'm glad it's a long passage. It'd be almost impossible to do verse by verse. So we'll have to, for our sermon this morning, really just see, I think, two clear perspectives that this text presents as to how God has declared there's no distinction. There is no distinction when it comes to who and how God saves. We need to believe this. The first view we need to see is the most important. When it comes to the gospel, God's defense that's point one, God's de gospel defense. You know, if anybody comes to defend the gospel in this text, and there's a lot of them, the chief one we need to see is God. And I want to show you for the first point this morning that God defends his gospel. God does. And that's important. It has a lot of applications for us. Secondly, we're going to see that if God's defending the gospel, man's responsibility is stewardship. Man, we need to steward well. And that's an old fancy word for, you know, kind of being responsible for and caring for with action. Okay, that's stewardship. Responsibility, caring for something with action. And so we're going to be stewards of the gospel. And that's a second perspective we need to have from this text. First, let's get some context. Especially if you're just now joining us. We've been in the book of Acts. What's been happening? Well, Paul and Barnabas have personally seen and have reported to the church in Jerusalem in our text what I just told you at the beginning of this message. God elects and saves from the nations, the Gentiles, people for his own choosing. God has been at work, to say the least. The first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas has come to a conclusion, and they've come back to their sending church, Antioch, and they are telling of God's deeds. Now, there were in this day, get this, Christian Pharisees in Jerusalem. Now, if you know the Bible at all, you're like, hold on, that's a contradiction because Pharisees are never saved. Well, be, be slow to say that, okay? There are some among the Pharisees, among the priests that have come to faith. Acts has told us God has even saved some of the enemies who killed Jesus. That's amazing, right? And, and some of them are saved. So their Christian Pharisee is kind of in existence in Jerusalem. And so Jewish religious leaders, some of them have believed. Now, they have been in Jerusalem, stayed near Jerusalem, and have only heard about what's going on beyond it. Now, I'm sure some of them have been truly converted, but we learn in verse 1 that some of them have clearly not been converted. Now, why do I say that? Well, because look at verse 1 again. It is the source of all of the controversy of all 35 verses. This whole chapter pivots on this one verse, which is our context. Some of these men have been sent by some of the Pharisaical leaders in the church to Antioch and Galatians, if this is the same account says, to spy out what's going on. You know, They come knowing they're not going to like what they see. And they show up and they have something 
that is terrible and destructive to say. Verse one, some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers and sisters in Christ. This is at the church in Antioch. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa, all right? That's our issue. That's our context. It's a heresy. So if you don't know what the word heresy means, it means that it is incompatible to the way scripture teaches that God has revealed himself and what we should know about him and about ourselves, okay? Something heretical goes completely against what God has revealed in his word. That's how we should judge heresy. And like any heresy that makes its way into the church, usually it sneaks slowly. Jesus said, beware of leaven of the Pharisees. Why? Because it's like leaven you know, yeast in a piece of dough. It's not going to be big at first. It's going to be small. But if you leave it unchecked, you leave it for a while, what happens? It's going to spread rapidly. And so like that, this has began to show up. Here's what's so cool about this context. Acts 15 sits in the very middle of this book. Now, I want you to think about that. For 15 chapters or 14 chapters, uh, literally about 12,300 words have been spilt to show you that Jesus meant what he said in Acts 1.8. God's spirit would fall, would fill the church in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now the ends of the earth. We've seen it. And if it's going to continue to be fulfillment, what's the last half of the book going to be? Right here in the middle is a big no-no where people stand up in the way of God and say, oh, this is how it needs to be. This is a climax of many ways. There's another 12,502 words in Acts 15 through 28. So quite literally, in the middle of this book, Luke, the historian who wrote this, wants you to realize that the problem of history when it comes to me and you as men and women, as we try to believe and carry the gospel forward, is that we will begin to say things like, you can be saved if you do this. And that's a huge problem. Why? I'll remind you of the introduction. Just like that Mona Lisa, you will lose the gospel. So the context here is silently, there is this heresy that is beginning to creep up in the church. If you'll be circumcised according to the law of Moses, along with your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Well, that's wrong. But right now, it doesn't seem like it. I hope you see the seriousness of the matter just even looking at it. I mean, just think about it as like a picture. If the gospel that God has been working through is like a glorious citadel, think of a city, okay? I've got one called Ministereth in my mind, okay? You call it whatever you want, but it's a big city and it's beautiful. And it's got walls built around it, right? And out in front of it, if you look at our text, are, are soldiers lined up to defend the, the citadel, the glory of God and the gospel, okay? They're defending it. And in our text, you know, people are coming on and they're trying to take the citadel. They're trying to destroy the city. They're trying to take the fortress, Paul and Barnabas in verses one through six, we're gonna skip them to get to God. But let me just tell you in this word picture we're doing, that they're like out front, okay? And they've been debating, verse two, and they've been arguing, and they go up to Jerusalem, and then they're debating and arguing some more, and they're kind of like fighting out front to keep the, you know, the thieves from getting in and taking the city. But if me and you, for our first point of this sermon, wanna find out who can really defend the gospel, keep this picture in your mind. We're gonna go past Paul and Barnabas, we're going to go into the city. We're going to make our way up and down the winding paths. We're going to pass all these various horsemen. There's Peter. There's James calling out you know, to, the, to the people, listen, and me and you need to make our way to the very top vantage point of our city. Do you know who resides there when battle is coming on? The king. The king is where he can see everything. 
He sees the enemies approaching. He sees his servants. He can give command, do this, do this, do this, to protect. And that king in our text shows up in verse 7. After there had been much debate, a lot of blood's been spilt in this battle. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. There's your king. Point one of our sermon is God's the one who defends the gospel. God's gospel defense. I, I wonder how important it is to you when you read a word like in the Bible, God made a choice among you. God made a choice that by my mouth, Peter's mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. You want more instructions from the king in this battle when it comes to protecting the gospel? Next verse. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. It says, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction. God made no distinction between Gentile and Jew. He cleansed them, it says, by what? Their hearts by faith. Now, do you see in here the clarity concerning who is the ultimate author of saving faith? Peter gets it, and he lets them know it is God alone who saves. Now, skip down with me, and I want you to see how James, the apostle, which remember, this is the half-brother of Christ. This is Jesus' half-brother. Look at the way he puts it in verse 14. He says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now you see the king's orders? God's not just up on the top of the kingdom, you know, looking out at the battle, making choices to defend. God is also out even ahead doing what? Taking a people from the enemy. God is doing this. Next, he shows these Pharisees that the Old Testament scriptures pointed them to this. Now, we don't have time to cover the depths of this Old Testament prophecy. Do you see it there? In Acts 15, notice your Bible text probably changes to where it kind of starts looking different. This is an Old Testament prophecy. It's actually quoting Amos. Now, I don't have time to cover the depths with you. I'd encourage you to go read Amos. Your study Bibles will help you. You can do it in Bible study, ladies, this week. But, you know, what you need to know is, is that the most important, I think, thing in this moment of thinking about God's defense of the gospel through Peter and James here is that around 800 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, think about this, God was showing his plan for the entire nations to be saved. I want you to think about that. Do you understand the love of God displayed here that 800 years prior, God was the God that was going to build up a tent of David, okay? God was going to take the ruins of people's lives because of sin, and he was going to restore it, restore this remnant of mankind. And look what he says, and all the Gentiles, verse 17, who are called by my name, says the Lord. God is going to do this. And so he's showing these people that are trying to say, you got you to obey the law to be saved. He's saying, no, no, no. Look what God's plan was from the beginning. Amos has said 800 years prior. I hope this is reaching you. You know, we get, me and you, okay, we get real melty and swoon with appreciation at the idea of people being married for a long time. You ever thought about it? 
So 50 or 60 years of marriage is just still a shocking thing, even more so now. And I remember when I was a youth pastor at a former church, I got to witness this event. We had four or five couples in the church that had been married either 40 years or longer. I mean, some of them up there were like 65 years that they had been married. And the idea of being that long together, they all were up on the stage and they renewed their vows. So they said, hey, you know what I said 45 years ago, 63 years ago? You remember that promise I made all that time ago? I've kept it. And so have you. And I remember our church, we were shocked at 200 years together of faithful monogamy. People trusting God that long and believing the promises they made to one another. It was amazing to see. They did picture slideshows of these once young, you know, now old and ugly uh, people up on the stage, just madly in love. It was just awesome. I mean, you combine those lifetimes that I saw, 200 years, that's one-fourth of the time that God vowed through Amos that he would take Gentiles and make them his bride, his people. God made a promise 800 years beforehand, and he kept it 800 years later. That should swoon us. You want to talk about hope? That's what should just be in your soul as a Gentile today, if you know Christ that God reached out to you and said, did you know I promised to bring you, a ruined remnant, back to my fruition, back to me as my child? I keep my promises. 800 years, right there in front of you. Promises made, Old Testament. Promises kept, New Testament. Jesus did it. And that's the point here. Peter and James are standing up and they're saying, let's remember who has the power of the gospel to save. It's God. And they need these men to know that. Because the moment that they take away from the gospel that somehow they did something in their own strength, they're going to lose it. What a glorious text, right? I mean, I hope you see it. It makes me excited. I hope you can say amen. For God has declared through these brothers here, once again, that there is not a dividing wall between you and God. You see, the gospel, when it's preached, God, man, Christ, and then your response When you believe by faith in Jesus that he has paid the penalty for your sins and beat death and risen and ascended and will one day return, and you trust fully in that, you need to know that what God says here is true of you. And God doesn't have for you some ugly, nasty yoke that is the law to just burden you. That's not what the gospel is. Instead, he actually says, my yoke is easy and light. Jesus bears the yoke of the law perfectly in your stead like the good steady ox that's been tested in the field. He has been tested and he can do the work. And you like a young, dumb, stupid ox get put into that yoke with him and you buck and you kick and you hate it because your life is hard. But you remember that to your left, that's one that has trotted the path before you. He's taken the yoke of sin and slavery fully in his penalty of dying for sin on the cross. And he's beat death. And he says, now come and follow me. And so these guys, they need to say, there is something to you know, come about responsibility and stewardship and obedience. But when it comes to comments like verse one, you cannot be saved. No, no, no. No, you can be saved. Surely you can be saved. Let me show you how God did it. And Peter has shown them how God did it in his presence. Now Paul and Barnabas have shown them. Now James has stood up. James has said, God's been saying this for 800 years. Will you listen? Now, Application of this. Be warned 
along with your excitement this morning, brothers and sisters. Verse 10 is very insightful. Look at it again. Peter asked them. He asked the heretics. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor us, we have been able to bear? That's a good question. Look at verse 19. I think James is also saying something. James says, therefore, to them, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. You see, along with being excited and blessed and encouraged today, I think the first point you need to understand about God's defense of the gospel is that if you are entertaining any heresies in your own mind and heart, be warned. Be warned. You and me can be opposed to the gospel message just like these Christian Pharisees have been. You see, destructive heresies often find their sources in our comforts. Let me make a connection for you contextually. Notice that Acts has taken the purity of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Remember? I showed you that so far. But now in the middle of it, we come all the way back to Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem? Not the nations. Right? Instead, it's these people who are sitting around back home. Now, I'm not saying all of them are guilty of not going. But if you're a Christian Pharisee or you're a lying Christian Pharisee, who's spreading destructive heresies, you really don't care about the nations. What you care about is making sure that the temple stays served, that the coffers stay full, that you get your pay if you're working for the priesthood, that you make sure, you see what I'm saying? You find the comforts of Jerusalem a lot more welcoming than you find the dangers of the mission field. And where does heresy love to creep in? Inactivity. Get comfortable, get lazy, you'll stop believing the gospel. This is a warning, right? Destructive heresies love comfort. So be warned by this text. Is your pursuit of comfort personally becoming an open door to destructive heresies? You want some examples of how this happens? Consider TBN. That, That channel is so messed up, it sits there propagating something called the prosperity gospel. Now, not every program on that TV channel is that. There's some good stuff on there. But it's rare. Most of the time, what you run into is people looking to justify a nice car, no debt, more house than they need, more trinkets than they need, more toys than they need, tech in the house that you know, they don't need, long, expensive vacations, big budgets that lets them eat out three to five times a week. Right? I want to be justified in Christ as a believer so that when I have faith, I can add materials to it. I'm going to trust God, have enough faith. Why? So that I can get stuff. You come to Jesus for that stuff, money and things, that, Jesus ain't your God. Money is. Money's your God. What is that? It's a destructive heresy. It's called the prosperity gospel, and it's leading millions of people straight to hell. Adding Jesus to what is your perfectly packaged American dream That's called gospel plus what you say your life needs to be like. And that ain't the gospel. The gospel is, God, I give you all of my life. I have no clue what my life will be. And if you would bless me, then so be it. But I'll I'll trust you. And if if the blessing is sickness, death, and curses, and I lose everything, Job, I'll still praise you. I'll still praise you for you're still good when you take everything from me. That's the gospel. Now, does God choose to bless and give us cars and family and friends and good food and things we can buy? Yeah, he does. But again, that gets into stewardship, right? Those are results. We're talking about how does a man get saved? Destructive heresies creep in when we get comfortable. Swing to the other end of the spectrum, the poverty gospel. 
Now, this one's weird. Nobody even believes this in America. Rarely do you find people preaching it, but it's out there. But the poverty gospel says the exact opposite. Okay, it says things like hate yourself, hate your, 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 you know, your food, your family, everything, like give up everything. Christian mysticism is where it really gets its origins. And there's some really heavy names I could tell you that I really respect as pastors in our church's history, you know, church, big church history, but I won't name drop them because I don't, I don't want to offend. But, but I will say like there are a lot of preachers or people in the past that would say things like you got to sell everything and follow Jesus. And they over heighten giving to the poor and meeting these needs and doing these good works. You, you feel me? You hear what I'm saying? If I can be good enough, I got to hate myself, my sin. I got to spend so X number of times in the Bible. I got to do so much time of prayer. I got to go out and do this much in the food pantry. I got to make sure that I'm doing these things. And the person's heart begins to believe. If I do these things, I'm found in Christ and I'm, and I'm loved. But what have you just done? You said you got to be your own functional savior. And hear me, if your obedience or your behavior modification, if you're trusting in that plus the gospel, you're not trusting in the gospel. And you're your own God. Be warned, right? I mean, destructive heresies are at every corner. And that's just two. That's just two extremes. You can go to anything. The point is, don't get comfortable. Right? Examine your life always, but do it by the standard of the gospel. As soon as you think, oh, man, I need to, you know, hate myself more and be more, you know, whatever. Well, listen, you're probably not listening to the gospel because the gospel says that even in your worst days, God still loves you. Even when you failed to read your Bible every day that week, he has set his seal upon you with the Holy Spirit and his face smiles when he sees Christ's righteousness in you. Okay, you need to remember that. But on the other end of the spectrum, when you're saying, you know, silly things like, God, you know, I'll have faith and you'll give me this and you have a misunderstanding. Be warned, be humbled because you've lost the gospel. You need Christ, Christ. He's enough, right? So there's many applications, but I think you chiefly see. In summary, God defends the gospel. If you're in Christ today and you fall into one of these sometimes, too much comfort, too much struggle, I just want you to know, like, this helped me so much this week. Um, God saves regardless of the trifles of me and you. I tried to lead out with that today. But, but I, I want to remind you, because I promise you forget. I know I forget. Tomorrow morning, you may wake up and look in the mirror and hate the person you see. That's true. You may look at it, James says, and, and it's like a, a mirror, and you walk away from it forgetting who you just saw. So know that you may do that sometimes. I do that. You do that. Christians fail in that sometimes. But James says that there is a way to look into that mirror, the perfect law of liberty, he calls it. And to walk away knowing who you are. My challenge to you tomorrow, this may be silly, it helps me sometimes. When you wake up before you start your day and you get to a mirror, look in the iris, look in the center of your eye. Pupil, whatever it is, Aaron knows. You look in the center of it. Be silly for a moment, but remind yourself, God, what, is there anything in this man or this woman that is trusting in anything besides the gospel? Because if it is, Lord, remove it. Take this destructive heresy away from me so I can serve you. I promise if that's the prayer of your life, you'll stand with James, you'll stand with Peter, you'll defend the city, okay? Second point, stewardship. What do we do? It's twofold. You know, you've seen God's preservation of the gospel. He's the author, he's the finisher. But second, we see that in the meantime, we're called to steward it. Our text shows clearly, James, uh, with this letter, okay? You heard it read. Look at verse 19 through 21. 
Now, this may get you, because this is pretty crazy. So it's like they show up. They're like, hey, you know, got to be circumcised to be saved. And they're like, no, 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 right? It's like, no, that's not true. The gospel alone saves plus nothing. Amen. Letter sent back, hey, do these things. So this is confusing. But look at verse 19. Therefore, James writes, my judgment, having concluded God saves, that Amos predicted it right. Therefore, uh, you know, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them. And to tell them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. He lists here from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Then he says this weird statement. He says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. He says, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Hmm. Now, if you're reading this after what I just hammered, you're probably thinking, whoa, 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 hold on. Didn't we just say God shows no partiality, no distinction, that Gentiles and Jews alike cannot, you know, they can't bear the burden of the law and and therefore they're saved through grace? Yeah, we did. So why in the world is James now saying right after this that these guys need to basically do everything besides circumcision? (laughs) Because that's basically what he just summarized there. I mean, outside of circumcision, he's saying be like a Jew. And that's what these Gentiles need to hear. Okay, that's confusing. However, Don't worry. I think there's a clear answer. Be a student of the word with me for a moment, okay? Notice in the verses we just read that James points out that when it comes to preaching Moses uh, strictly, they shouldn't be worried. I want you to notice that. So with that comment, James, he's making the point, these Gentiles that have gotten saved and are in Christ, they have been aware of God for centuries, okay? Now, he's not gonna go so far as to say what Romans 1 will say, Paul's eventually going to say everybody's actually aware of who God is because all of creation testifies to his works and who he is, and they're accountable. He's not going all the way there, but he's going to this point of like, do you realize that here you are harping Moses, and these Gentiles, through God's sovereign plan, they have grown up around Moses for centuries. The Jews have been spread out. If you go read the Old Testament, you'll see them here and here and here and here and here getting just whipped all the time by various kings. It's just terrible. It's really sad. But God's people, and he's just left a remnant everywhere. And if you remember, they came to Pentecost, spirit fell, and a lot of them went back. And so not only are they hearing Moses all the time for like years, but even since Jesus 15 years ago, some of them have been hearing the truth of the gospel as well. So James is trying to show them, here you would add to the gospel and forget because you're worried about them ignoring Moses, and you wouldn't even see that God has been at work through Moses for centuries. He's been propping up what they needed to understand. Before coming to faith in Christ by the preaching of the gospel, when Paul and Barnabas showed up, they were already condemned by ignoring any witness to the law. That's his point here. So he's trying to calm you down. Be like, hey, listen, calm down. God's taking care of things. And instead, he says a list that they should be doing as believers. Now, notice circumcision is not on the list. That's crazy. What was 15 verse 1 all about? Circumcision. You got to be circumcised to be saved. And now when James gives the answer as to how now to live, correcting that issue, it doesn't make the list and instead these other things do. Stay with me and look at verses 28 and 29, okay? Now this is the way it leaves Jerusalem. It goes in a letter form. It goes to the church in Antioch and they read it. Now listen, he reads and I'm going to explain, but let's hear it again. I mean, the Bible repeats itself on purpose. Anytime it repeats, pay attention. It says again, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit the apostles write, 
and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Okay, now notice at the end of what you must do, did you notice that he did not say you cannot be saved unless you do these? What did he use? What language did he use? You will do well. You will do well. We forget sometimes that if we're saved by the gospel alone, that God who purchased us, Ephesians 1 says, from the foundations of the world, that God is also in purchasing us, Ephesians 2, 11, purchased our good works. He has prepared them for us to walk in. God has not only purchased for you perfect salvation apart from your own works in Christ, but upon that good work, God has purchased for you living holy lives, trusting him and glorifying him in what you do. And so in the best way that the Jerusalem uh, Jewish brethren can do, they tell these Gentiles, we know the life you lived beforehand and we want to just lovingly warn you that you may be tempted to go back to the things that you have ignored in God's law. Be warned. You know, this is, this is for any Christian that thinks the law is gone. Don't throw the law out entirely. See it fulfilled in Christ and learn to delight in it. Okay? Antinomianism, it's a big fancy word, anti-law. We are not antinomians. We are not anti-law. We are pro-law. We believe it is, can become our delight. But without Christ, it is a noose. With Christ, it is a leash in his hand. You see the difference? And it is leading and guiding. And so here, he tells them some things found in God's law. They'll do well to not go and do the pagan revelry that they used to do. They were some jacked up people. You ever read the book of Corinthians? Turns out their hunch is right. Go read Corinthians and you can see Paul agreeing with these guys of like, hey, stop practicing sexual immorality. You, you, you can't say you have the kingdom of heaven in mind that you're going to be there when you practice sin. Paul's going to write and correct. I mean, the whole New Testament after this is all about this warning. So these brothers are not saying, hey, to be saved, you got to do this. They're saying, because you're saved and we see it now, can we still also say our prayers are with you? And hey, remember, God has bought you with a price. Honor him with your life. They want him to be holy. Man, that's awesome. If you believe the gospel, then you must be committed to stewarding it responsibly. Let me say that again. If you really believe the gospel, you need to be committed to stewarding it responsibly. These Jewish leaders appointed by God over the church are aware of all the vast differences that exist between the Jew and the Gentiles' culture, and yet God has called them to be one church. So in Antioch, there's going to be Jews and Greeks, and they're called to be one church, even when they don't like each other. So another reason why this list is given is not just for the sake of the person to be holy, but also for fellowship to be able to happen. Let me tell you something amazing about the gospel. Our gospel, the gospel of God, which is the power to save, it can save the most religious fanatic that thinks his morals will save him and the dirtiest, wretched, prostitute tax collector in Jesus' day, right? I mean, the lowest, what seems to be casted aside leper of society. And it will put them side by side, singing the same praises, praying for one another, encouraging one another, eating meals together. 
The gospel is the one thing that can take the furthest polarized people you can think of and put them in the same family. And then, on top of that, amazingly, give them, give them peace. Now, to show you that this is actually what they have in mind when they hear this and they're not just more upset, look at verse 30 and 31. Look at their reaction. When they were sent off, they went to Antioch. Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So there they are, Jews and Gentiles, who were, you know, hearing this stuff from, from Jerusalem. Oh, crud, like, we ain't saved if we're not circumcised. This is not good. And then they show up saying, hey, that was wrong. Here's the correction. And look what happens in verse 31. When they heard it, read, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. That's not a typo. See, there's actual Christians in Antioch. When they're told that they need to live holy lives, they need to stop being this, stop doing this, stop doing this, and instead trust Christ. When they're told that, because the gospel's there, that's not, that's not somebody condemning them. That's somebody encouraging them. You see, this is what it means to steward the gospel. It means you're willing to have people in your life that sometimes they write you a letter or an email or they take you to coffee or they sit down with you and they say, brother and sister, you were prideful here. And I'm so concerned for you. And tell me, am I wrong? But I see this in your life and it looks like sin. Would you repent or would you help me understand? And, and, and somebody who hears something like, I got I to gotta stop eating food so, uh, sacrificed to idols. I got to stop you know, being immoral. I got I to gotta cook my steaks all the way, you know, like whatever it is about. I say, you know, a person who hears like, you have a shortcoming and I see it. When they hear that they respond with the gospel, they're encouraged. You know why? Because they know that the person saying it isn't going anywhere. So literally, Paul and Barnabas come back, and how does our text end? They stay. So the guys went and found out. They come back, and Paul and Barnabas are going to stay there, the text says. It even says that Silas, who comes, and, and, uh, and the other brother, I can't remember his name. Uh, yes, Judas, Judas Barsabbas, right? These guys who come, they encourage the church. They stay for a while. They say, hey, God's not giving up on you, and we're not either. And man, they have unity, right? I mean, how amazing is this fellowship? application here is endless. Let's just pick a couple in closing here. For the sake of a gospel-centered community, let me ask you this question. What are you willing to give up that you once held to be your gospel right? You see, that's an application from this text. We love our freedoms in Christ, right? You know what's funny? These, these Jewish leaders, they write and say, abstain from me offered to idols, you see, what would happen is, is in the pagan temples, they would offer these great, illustrious offerings of, of animals. They would kill them to Zeus or whoever in the Greek world. And then the leftovers would spill over into the marketplace because they couldn't eat it all. They couldn't do it in their libations and in their drunken revelry. And that stuff would spill over into the marketplace where Jews and Gentiles alike are going to go shop. But the Jews would not buy those because why? God's commanded clearly, don't eat the food offered to idols. And so then these guys, you know, they are now Christians, but they've been eating that meat their whole life. Paul actually is going to write to some of them in Corinth and say that you're free in Christ, that you actually can eat this, this food because you know in your heart that it's a false God, but the true God made this cow or whatever you're buying. And so you with, you with faith, you can do it and it won't be sin. But you know what Paul includes in Corinthians and Romans when he writes that? He says, yeah, it's a right to you. All things are lawful, so you say, Corinthians, but all things aren't helpful. And how dare you take your freedom to eat meat that you can't meet because of Christ and use that freedom to bind another brother who can't. You see, Paul's, the Jews here and Paul and them, they're, they're willing to say, the Gentiles are willing to say, I will give up my right 
to go eat meat that my conscience is actually not bothered about eating if it means I get to have closer fellowship with my Jewish brothers in Christ. Because they know that if they were to be eating that food, it would cause the Jew to stumble. Now, his faith is weaker. His faith is a weak faith. He should see that God's made all things clean. But y'all remember Peter? They stubborn, right? It takes a few times to get it in the head because they love their tradition. But a good Gentile in Antioch would say, yeah, I'll receive this for you, brother, because I'm willing to. That's an application for us. What preference or comfort are you willing to give up in your own life so that you can have fellowship with another brother or sister in Christ in the church? That's what's happening here. I can't imagine after this rejoicing and encouragement, I bet they all broke off and they went to their homes and they had meals together. I bet they did. And I bet the Gentiles beat them there so they could go put all that food that was sacrificed to idols away. It's like, put this stuff away, right? And we got to eat this bread now, but that's okay. And then they enjoyed it. I bet that happened. I bet people were willing to say, you know what? I could watch this movie, but honestly, brother, I know it bothers you and so I'm not going to do it. And I love you. Or, hey, you know, I could drink this alcohol, and I don't think it's sinful, but, you know, listen, for you, brother, I know, you're, I know, you, I know where you're at, and I know you love Jesus, and I'm not going to let this be a stumbling block between our relationship. And so for you, I'll abstain, brother. I love you. That's what's happening in this text. Now, that's strange, right? But when you get real with the gospel and you start to steward it correctly, these are the natural things. Now, I'm not saying we cannot have, you know, these good things and we have to give them up or whatever. You know, you can get into Romans 14, 15, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Look, just have a field day. I hope you do because that's the outworkings of this stuff. But for now, I want you to see in closing that uh, a final point is ask yourself, what does your comfort look like in your own life as a habit, as a Christian? Do you have these kind of issues? If you don't have issues where you're worried about other people, I would argue you may not be getting the depths of what it means to believe the gospel with others. See, eventually, if you believe the gospel together in a community, you get to a point where you start to get on each other's nerves. And dwelling sin shows up. You start to see, man, I really don't like the way they do that with their kid. I mean, I really, I'm really kind of frustrated about the fact that they don't ever do this. Why is it always this way? The prayers are so long. <laughs> Just kidding. But you see these shortcomings in one another. And the gospel shows up and it says, you've been bought with a price, overlook it. I mean, a quick verse to quote in authentic community is, let grace cover a multitude of issues and sins. This is what we're called to. Acts 15 stands on the precipice of serious work. 16, 17, 18, we are about to see the gospel unleashed, y'all. I mean, whole cities rioting, Artemis of the Ephesians falling down, God of the Bible rising up. I mean, you aren't even ready for the epic that is coming, but you can be. Acts 15 is here for a purpose. It stands as kind of like a halfway point to say, what will you value the most? Will you trust the gospel alone? And as you trust the gospel, will you obey and steward where you have opportunity? Don't bury your talent in the ground, invest it in the kingdom. People that do that, they're ready. They're ready for what is about to happen next, which is actually a disagreement. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm sorry. I, just, I, I, wish, I wish it was romantic and like Acts 16. It's like, there they go. But it's actually not. Next week, they want to argue and fight with each other. So that's what you get to look forward to next week is we're ready for mission. And like, oh, we're going to argue and fight about John Mark. Okay. So anti-climax, right? Bring it down. But the point is like we can respond this morning with, I hope, a heart that says, God, you are the defender of the beautiful work of art that the gospel is. 
And God, you have given me a task to preach it and and to steward it, and I'm going to do my best. You give that to God, I promise he'll multiply it. You believe that? Me too. Let's pray, and then we'll sing and and do some praying as a church, okay? Pray with me. God, thank you for the gospel. Um, Thank you for the hope that it is. When we feel hopeless, when we are so convinced of other things, God, we confess that uh, we fall victim to false gospels. But God, thank you for this morning that we can see that just like these Gentiles in Antioch and the Jews in Jerusalem, that they can believe together, so can we believe, God. Despite our failings and and shortcomings, God, you have chosen us just like you chose these Gentiles, and you've done it in Christ. God, thank you for rebuilding the ruins of our lives and restoring us, the remnant that we are, to have full access to you. As we sing about it, God, and we testify to one another in song about the blood, God, help us to believe it together. And then as we pray as a church, we ask you to hear our prayers. And then as we're dismissed, God, that we'd honor and glorify you with everything we have. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.